Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, kids. Don't do legal highs. Now this may come as a bit of a surprise, but they're not legal, despite their name, and yes, that sounds insane. Like the whole psychoactive drugs bill, which due to an amendment makes slightly more sense, cause they're now not just banning anything that affects your brain. From a cup of tea to the smell of rain. But legal highs now aren't legal highs. Like compassionate conservatism or Coldplay Live. Like sports personality or living wage. It don't make sense, but no matter what your age, don't do legal highs. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tian Nduyeb, or at least that's what it says on the labels inside my underwear. I can't tell you how much confusion it caused when I bought some Calvin Klein boxers that one time. On this week's show, I have a chat with London and Eastern Regional Secretary for Unite, Peter Kavanagh, all about the Trade Union Bill. Um, I'm also going to be looking at the new in-effect Psychoactive Substances Bill, although I won't be inhaling it. And yeah, more EU. Boring, boring. Oh God, just wake me up when it's June 24th. Uh, On Saturday... I was on my way to my gig in Oxford and I was driving along my seventh least favourite motorway, uh, the M40, and I saw a really big billboard saying, Halt is the German advance, vote leave. Now, I should quickly point out before you give the immediate reaction that I did of, oh my God, what the fuck is that? Um, That has been spotted by quite a lot of people and vote leave have already said it's not an official poster of theirs. But... The fact that many thought it was, and it's probably been made by someone who does support their campaign rather than an opponent, I mean, that says an awful lot about vote leave, doesn't it? The argument has become far more about a lower low style xenophobic stereotypes than any actual substance. And I don't really think it makes much sense either. I mean, Holt is a German advance. And I mean, that's written in a faux German accent. You know, so is it meant to be one German that's warning us about other Germans? In which case, that's a bit weird. Um, and... Or maybe, I mean, maybe I'm reading it entirely wrong and perhaps Z German is just one person and that's that's their name. I mean, it does sound quite like the name of someone who might enter the Turner Prize, you know, with collages of dogs' arseholes or something, doesn't it? 
Either way, it's thoroughly depressing and it feels like we're just days away from some bigot telling us we need to leave the EU to avoid the cheese-eating surrender monkeys. As always, thanks for listening to the show. Um, I've been looking at the stats because I have some, like a pro, and it seems like quite a lot of you listen to this within two days of the podcast coming out. Well done you, you are team A. Um, But then several more of you are still a few weeks behind. So I did one of those Twitter polls to ask you how often you'd like the podcast to come out, uh, which was a silly idea because with Twitter polls, only 30 people voted, which is under 3% of you. And at least two of those people think I shouldn't be doing a podcast at all. Thanks, guys. So while 57% of those 30 people do think it should be weekly, and I could just do a UK election with it and decide that that's enough of the electorate to make a decision that could affect all of your lives, instead, why not just drop me a line and let me know if weekly is okay? Uh, For me, it sort of feels best in order to get rid of all the crap that's happening every week in the political system uh, and direct it into your ears, but perhaps it's too much for you and you need a little less in your life. Um, Let me know, would you only like words and thoughts every two weeks, or monthly, or yearly, or perhaps only when there's a blood moon and delivered by Al? Let me know. Also, for those of you that don't have enough podcasts to listen to in your week, uh, do check out Nick Ravel and Ben Powell's new one called The Madness on Planet Earth. Uh, I'm on episode one, as is the very, very funny Granier Maguire, and we discuss, amongst other very important things, whether bad haircuts make politicians evil. So do check that out. Right. Here's this week's Headlines. In America, the country that operates like 50 smaller dysfunctional countries at a formal picnic, Donald Trump is now the official Republican presidential candidate. Despite the initial protests of many Republicans, including Speaker of the US House of Representatives Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan hasn't yet endorsed Trump and seems sceptical about doing so, but he has said that they've had some productive conversations, which is massively surprising as no one knew Donald Trump was capable of those. While the Democratic candidate is still to be officially announced, it looks like it's going to be a Trump-Clinton race to the White House. And recent polls suggest that Donald is actually more popular than Hillary, despite a political fact-checker stating that 91% of his statements are massive lies. I mean, it just makes me confused as to what Americans want. You know, I thought they wanted a change in politics, perhaps more honest politics, but instead maybe they're all just really big labyrinth fans and assume if they have a president who acts like the door that always lies, it'll be a fun daily riddle to have to work out what the truth of each situation is. He says all Mexicans are criminals. Hang on a second. That means they're not criminals. Well done, Americans. Meanwhile, Donald Trump has been stating that illegal migrants get better treatment than US war veterans, while Trump himself has previously hired illegal immigrants for his building projects, while he recently held a fundraiser for war veterans where half of the donations have disappeared. And really, I just feel really sorry for Americans that their choice for the next presidential election is going to be between a dead-behind-the-eyes corporate pro-war puppet with stupid hair, or a ludicrous lying moron with stupid hair. I mean, perhaps the Republicans' Democrats need to change their motives accordingly. The Republican elephant needs to become something more that, like Trump, conveniently forgets what he said the day before. Maybe a a goldfish. And the Democratic donkey could instead represent Hillary a bit better and perhaps be a slightly grinning crocodile. Speaking of cold-blooded creatures, former Prime Minister Tony Blair has refused to say whether or not he'll accept the verdict of the Chilcot Report when it's released. I mean, I bet that's not at all disappointing for Lord Chilcot, who spent seven years writing it. Here you go, I've finally finished after all these years. What? You're just going to ignore it? Oh. 
I have no idea if that's how Lord Chilcott speaks, but I bet you it's pretty close. Blair also stated that Jeremy Corbyn in power would be a very dangerous experiment for the UK, which considering Blair revelled in a lot of dangerous experiments in the Middle East, I think that might have been a compliment from him, but I'm not sure. Tony Blair also suggested that the dislike many of the public now have for him wasn't at all to do with the Iraq war, but the fact that he won three general elections for Labour. Yeah, sure mate. And you know what? No one really minded Harold Shipman murdering all those people. They were just jealous of his doctorate. The man who worked out how to turn unpaid workfare into reality TV, Lord Alan Sugar, has been hired as the government's enterprise star. He'll be undertaking a series of road shows up and down the country talking to school leavers and businesses, probably about how no one's used Amstrad for so many years that he now has to spend his time telling idiots they've failed at cleaning enough dogs with cut-price blamonges and so someone from their team expedient twat has to be fired. Lord Sugar has recently resigned from the Labour Party, which was the source of mocking from George Osborne at Prime Minister's Question Times, who told the opposition that Lord Sugar had told them, you're fired. Ha <laughs> ha, hilarious. Nice one, George, you humorless twat. Back in 2005, Lord Sugar said the iPod would be dead, kaput, gone by the following Christmas. And now, political parties are arguing over whose side he's on. We're all fucked, people. We are totally and utterly fucked. Politicians and poorly thought-through drug spills go together like an aquarium of dangerous fish and professional brick throwers. Do you remember in 2009 when David Nutt wrote a report stating that, statistically speaking, taking ecstasy was far less risky than going horse riding and that alcohol was much more harmful than most drugs? And then the then Home Secretary Alan Johnson responded by ignoring all of the evidence, saying David Nutt had crossed the line from science to policy and dismissed him from his position as an advisor while re-upgrading cannabis from a Class C to a Class B drug against all of the scientific recommendations. And this happened mainly because David Nutt's report didn't fit in at all with the government's proposed ideas of cracking, yes, pun intended, down hard on drug use. That, and if you were to ban drunk people riding around on horses instead of ecstasy, a lot of MPs' friends would be very unhappy, even though millions of people each weekend would be the opposite. This time round, there's a whole new hash of a drugs policy. Yes, pun intended again. On May the 26th, a bill the new scientist called, and this is probably the best quote you could ever get, one of the stupidest, most dangerous and unscientific pieces of drugs legislation ever conceived came into force. Because, you know, I guess the government always needs to be the best at something, even if it's being the very, very worst at something. The Psychoactive Substances Bill went through several changes and turns before it was finalised, mainly because it took a little while before the Home Office really had any single clue what it was that they were making illegal. I mean, their original definition of a psychoactive substance was anything that produces a psychoactive effect in a person if by stimulating or depressing the person's central nervous system, it affects the person's mental functioning or emotional state. Which, if you take that as read, means anything that affects people in any way. Yeah, the government could have been banning chocolate, or smelling flowers, or seeing someone in inappropriate footwear tank it on an icy road while walking to a nightclub in the winter. Which is, it is brilliant. That makes me feel happy for days. Yeah, I mean, it does seem about right that Theresa May, who spends her weekends terrorising Narnia, would want to remove anything that stimulated any sense of feeling from the general public. I mean, personally, I'm fairly certain that she's got blueprints on her desk to completely ban smiling in public and the entire concept of laughter. 
Luckily, however, the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs exists, and their job is to inform the Home Office about drugs and the possible harm of them. David Nutt and several of his colleagues were part of it until 2009 when, as I mentioned before, they informed the Home Office about drugs and their possible harm, and so consequently got fired. But this time around, despite being mostly ignored at first, the ACMD suggested the Home Office amend the bill so that it now applies the more scientific definition of psychoactive substance, which relates to drugs and dangerous drugs, and not just everything that ever existed that stimulated people's brains, which I think only excludes ITV on a Saturday night. The Home Office then said no, they wouldn't do that, and then secretly did that anyway so it looked like it was all their idea, and said the ACMD did it to support their policy, rather than them suggesting it stop the policy from being full on batshit, making everything illegal unless the government says it's not. So yeah, it's sort of good, but really, the bill overall has quite a few serious consequences of the sort you'd expect the cast of Grain Chill to tell you about in an informative video. All drugs except alcohol, poppers and tobacco are now illegal including legal highs that people are still insisting are called legal highs, even though they aren't legal anymore. Well done, everyone. And it is a bit of an odd choice, because a lot of legal highs haven't actually yet been tested for human consumption, and, well, not officially, apart from all those people every weekend, but really, no one officially knows just how risky they are. And legal highs have been implicated in the deaths of 76 people over the last decade, so that's less than Putin. Uh, and considering how many are taken each year, that's really not very many people overall. And don't get me wrong, there are some very valid concerns over the safety of taking legal highs, especially the sort of withdrawal symptoms you get when you stop. But now that they've been made illegal, there's evidence to suggest that black market dealers have taken over the trade, which is far, far more dangerous because they're mixing them with anything and we've got no idea what. As David Nutt has pointed out, shops selling the illegal highs weren't interested in killing people, but black market dealers just want to make a profit. So the illegal legal highs could now be hugely far more dangerous than they were before. And with overstretched police forces and proposed closures of a fifth of courts, a lot of time will now be taken up with this that could have been spent dealing with other really important crimes. It's almost as if, by listening to genuine concerns from those that actually have expertise in the area, the Home Office could have made a much safer and clever policy rather than the one they rushed through to appear tough on drugs. I would advise that they step back and take a chill pill, but somehow I don't think they'd listen. After 10 months of challenges and debates in and out of Parliament, the Trade Union Bill, now called the Trade Union Act 2016, became law at the beginning of this month proving once again that when the Conservatives say they are the party that back hard-working people, you realise it's off a cliff as a message to all the others who are demanding better pay and conditions. Some amendments were made to the bill, uh, curbing certain parts, such as you know anyone on a picket line having to show their personal details to the police, which I'm glad because that's a very odd idea in the first place. I mean, what would the police have done if you didn't have ID? I mean, refuse you entry to the job you're striking from being at? Hmm... However, the main parts of the bill were kept, uh, and they focus on making it harder, on the whole, for workers to take action. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking, why does it matter? Some of you are probably thinking, what is a union? Can you have a uni off? Workers' rights? But when is it workers' lefts day? And, you know, questions like that. Well, this week I spoke to Peter Kavanagh all about what this Trade Union Act means for workers and why unions are still important in today's world. 
Peter is the Unite the Union Regional Secretary for London and Eastern. And do you know what? It was very nice to talk to him in general, but also how lovely to talk about unions other than the European one for a little bit. Though, yeah, the EU does get mentioned in the second half. I'm sorry, there's just no escaping it. Here's Peter. Could you explain to us what the trade union bill actually is and why it's going to be so damaging to unions and workers? Yeah, no problem, CNN. Um, I think it's important, first of all, to say that the, the act that's now gone to the statute book um, has had many of the clauses removed that the government had originally intended to be included. Um, I think it's interesting to, to think why that is the case. I think it's a combination of um, political expediency, um, cynicism, but also down to um, a lot of lobbying on the part of, of trade unions. I guess it's also important to say that, you know, that this is a new piece of legislation being added to what we consider are the most draconian set of um, industrial relations laws in, in, in any of the developed countries. Um, it's all very, already very, very difficult for trade unions to operate effectively and represent their members effectively with the legislation that was previously in place. So we see it as another attack on organised labour and our attempts to represent workers in workplaces. The, 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 the Act itself... Um, the main sort of uh, the main provisions of the Act um, deal with thresholds for ballots. So we now have to have at least 50% of the um, membership actually voting. Right. So it, oh, it's 50%. Is it in the new bill? It, it's 50% of, of of all of our members need to vote. And in the case of um, certain um, public sector and other areas of the economy that are seen to be particularly sensitive, 40% of the entire um, uh, number of people that, that, that are entitled to ballot must also vote yes. Just to give you an example of what that means, sure. if 63% of our members vo actually voted in a ballot and 63% of those voted yes for strike action, that wouldn't be enough to meet the double threshold. Right. So it, it's 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 a fairly high hurdle to meet, especially when we think about just for a moment what uh, MEPs typically and local councillors get in elections to very important democratic positions. Not uncommon for only twenty-five to thirty to thirty-five percent of the electorate to actually take part in the vote, and of course, far less than that actually voting for the successful candidate. The government itself elected. Uh, with about thirty-eight percent of voters sure. um, supporting it, so it's it, you know it, it's 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 a very different hurdle that's being set for workers, who after all don't you know likely take strike action. They don't opt to take strike action for the fun of it. They do it, for example, when their jobs are at threat, when uh, perhaps their representative is being victimised. Um, for a decent pay rise, you know, after perhaps years and years of austerity pay freezes or pay cuts, or indeed on health and safety issues. You know, there's a, there's a long history of trade unions fighting for its members on issues that I think most people at the end of the day consider to be completely reasonable. So that's that's one of the key um, provisions within the Act. Um, there's a number of other uh, other elements that are making our ability to 
to, to take action or, or indeed threaten action more difficult. We have to give two weeks' notice now as opposed to one week. So there's, right. there's a time limit now on the actual life of the ballot, which I think can have a very negative impact on both sides. Uh, so, for example, if, uh, if an employer chooses to um, you know, refuse to come to the negotiating table, they can play hardball and the life of the ballot will could just be exhausted without any negotiations taking place. The other side of the coin, which I think the government hasn't taken into account, is it will push unions to take action perhaps more um, you know, more quickly than previously rather than sit around the negotiating table and actually do the collective bargaining that we, we actually need to and want to do. So that, sure. that's another element of, of, of the um, of the new uh, legislation. Because just but, uh, just to just to go back for a second, sorry, Peter, to jump. Um, just to go back for a second, do you also think with the you know needing uh, more than fifty percent to vote and forty percent to agree, do you think that will also encourage more people in unions to take an active role and and take part in voting? Do you think it, there is a a kind of another side to it that it may incite more people to be a bit more involved? Well, I mean, that, that, that's an interesting thought. And of course, you know, faced with this challenge, um, certainly my, my, my trade union, Unite the Union, will be putting, you know, considerable resources and energy and time into making sure we meet these um, new thresholds. And, uh, you know, that, that may well uh, have, you know, a sort of side effect of greater participation, greater focus from the union itself, but let me say very importantly that, that Unite has made it clear all along that we welcome uh, the idea of increasing democracy. We welcome the idea of more people taking part in a ballot. And what we put to the Prime Minister himself, our General Secretary wrote directly to the Prime Minister, saying that we welcome the idea of increasing democracy, but let's look um, at how we go about doing that. So we, we for example, proposed that we have secure workplace balloting with independent scrutiny. This is something that already happens by a government body called the Central Arbitration Commission, mm. which deals with matters of trade union recognition in workplaces. There is already in place, since, since the year 2000, secure workplace balloting um, overseen by an independent scrutineer. And in, in all that time, in all those 16 years, there has not been one single incidence or complaint about fraud or abuse. Wow. So we welcome the idea of more people taking part, but this government has, has, has point blank refused to even consider the idea of secure workplace balance. What we have managed to get them to do is to go away and look at potentially e-balloting. Right. Um, actually getting into the uh, 21st century, um, doing something the Conservative Party itself already does when it uh, selects its own candidate for the Mayor of London, for example. Um, I can't remember his name because was, he was such a forgettable <laughs> candidate. I think he was Mr Goldsmith. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was actually elected by Conservative Party members in London through e-balloting. But, of course... This is something that the Tory government, um, you know, although they understand it increases democracy, it increases the number of people that take part, they haven't readily agreed to do it. The good news is they, we have actually managed to get them to look into this, and this is something that we'll be working hard to deliver as we move forward. Uh, yeah, it, it, it does always strike me. Uh, we had someone on the podcast a few weeks ago discussing... Uh, 
e-voting in general for people that you know to, to allow more access to uh, getting to vote and things it it does strike me as amazing that it's not something that's been implemented in today's day and age uh, in a lot more areas really um so uh, just you you were mentioning earlier other areas of the bill that have been uh, that have been put through and have been changed they they you turned on um repealing the ban on employers using temporary workers didn't they um why do you think that was yeah that's an interesting one. I think I think there's a, a number of reasons for that. Um, the association that represents um, agency workers, it's, it's agency rather than temporary workers. The, right. so, so the the employers' organisation that represents those agencies um, themselves lobbied very hard against this um, provision. They felt that it would put them in an awkward position. Um, it would put their agency workers in a difficult situation. So it was interesting that the body that you may have thought would welcome this, um, getting more work, if you like, through the back door, crossing picket lines, that they themselves opposed it. We, we opposed it very strongly because mm. we felt it would be it would be disastrous for community cohesion. And what I mean by that is um, it is the case that in many parts of the country, you know, some of the most exploited workers, agency workers, lowest paid workers uh, come from migrant communities, you know, typically in, in this part of the world uh, or just outside of London, East Anglia, we're looking at, you know, workers from, from East Europe. And the idea of them being bussed in um, across picket lines while, you know, the, perhaps the indigenous workforce who were unionised, the permanent workforce, were taking lawful strike action, you know, would have been nothing short of a disaster. So I, I really welcome the fact that this has been dropped. I think, you know, a number of commentators have also um, posed the interesting question, did the government back down on some of these things because they, uh, of course, at the moment need all the help they can get sure. in the European referendum? And I think there's, uh, without a doubt, um, some substance to that. Um, the trade unions, um, not not universally, but certainly my, my, my union, which is the biggest trade union in the country, Unite, is very strongly in favour uh, of, of remaining in Europe. So I, I, I think there's probably some, unfortunately, some substance in the theory that cynicism played its little part here. Uh, the government needs the big battalions of trade unions to, to throw their weight behind the Remain campaign. Sure, sure. But I guess that's quite handy in, in this instance uh, in terms of not repealing the ban, uh, which is fantastic. Um, j- just out of interest, what, why are Unite so so behind staying in? Is that to do with all the workers' rights policies that the EU has? I think that's that, that's um, you know you, you you've hit the nail on the head. As that that's the main thing. I, I mean, I think I'll be fairly typical to describe myself as um, a fairly unpassionate. Uh, pro-European support. Right. <laughs> I don't think any of us feel that... I, um, I think I'm the same, yeah. <laughs> no, what, I don't think many of us feel that what goes on in Brussels is, is anything to, to, to feel too inspired or, or motivated by. But, yes, for, from a trade union point of view, um, you know, if, if we use the old phrase, what has the EU ever done for us? Well, you know, it, quite a few things, actually. Uh, quite a few things for working people. Paid holidays becoming a legal requirement, parental leave becoming a legal requirement, the equal pay legislation, you know, maternity rights and paternity rights, um, health and safety legislation, much of our health and safety framework 
which um, you know some people in the right wing uh, press choose to mock, but actually it's about saving people's lives. It's about making the the working environment safe and mm. healthy. Information and consultation. You know, the list goes on and on and on. European Works Councils, which are very important for workers to gain information about um, you know multinational companies' plans for the future, plans for their you know, the, the workers' future. So uh, certainly the, the, the legislative framework around employment rights is, is very important from a European perspective. But the other big one, of course, is jobs itself. We, we are persuaded by uh, the very strong argument, in my, in my view, that um, you know, if we were to simply Brexit, um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jobs, would be very, very quickly at risk. And as a trade union that, that fights to make sure that people have decent, skilled, well-paid, rewarding jobs, you know, we're, we're very much in the camp of saying that uh, warts and all, we think that staying in Europe has got to be better than uh, doing what the little Englanders are sure. calling for, which is let's stand alone and be Great Britain again. Yeah, 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 definitely. I, and I think it's also interesting, back to the workers' policies, I think um, uh, personally I... I'm concerned with with things like the trade union bill and stuff that the government have pushed through. You know, that I would be worried that they wouldn't re-implement some of the policies <laughs> that the EU have put in if we left. You know, I'd worry that those wouldn't come back in under another guise. Um, most definitely, most definitely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, do, do you feel because you were saying earlier about the trade union bill, they've the government have now put in a number of policies that are making it harder for workers. Um, it sort of feels like there has been kind of growing animosity towards unions, both in Parliament and in the press since pretty much since 2010, I think, if not a little bit longer. Why do you think that is? Why are they so anti-union? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we've, been, we've been living in a you know dramatically changing landscape probably for 40 years now. Um, if you go back 40 or 50 years, over 80% of the working population were covered by collective agreements. So you didn't have to be in a trade union or indeed even being a trade union organised workplace to be benefiting from the collective agreement that unions would negotiate mm. with employers for, for, for sectors of industry, for sectors of the economy. We've, we've, we're now down to uh, you know a little over 25% of the workforce now covered by agreement. So there's been a there's been a long term sort of erosion of the whole notion of it being a good thing for people to have standards across you know, different sectors of the economy um, to, to have a, a greater, uh, a sort of more level playing field, greater equality. So it's not been just the last few years, but you are right to, to hone in on since 2010 in particular. There's been a view that, you know, the trade unions are kind of the last obstacle to, um, you know, the project, the project being, um, you know, getting rid of the state, um, you know, austerity measures, the free market, um, you know, being held up as the answer to everything. And the trade union movement is all about regulation. It's all about fairness. It's all about, you know, trying to get equal pay, certainly between men and women, um, and making sure that people are rewarded for the jobs that they do. And so I think that the government has seen as, as, a, as an obstacle to their um, to their project, which is the very you know um, opposite of what what our beliefs are all about. I think that uh, opposition it, since two thousand and ten has been has been weak. It's been poor. 
in uh, parliamentary opposition. Sure. And I think certainly unions like Unite have, in, in many ways, had to step into a void and have actually, you know, organised mass protests on the streets, mass campaigns against um, the privatisation of the health service. You know, we, we have... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Inevitably taking on a, a, a more political role in a climate where we believe working people and the most vulnerable people in society have been attacked like they've never been attacked before. So I think, you know, all of those reasons would, would, would militate towards a government saying we need to do something about these people. We need to shackle them. We need to prevent them organising workers. We need to prevent them having a political voice. Uh, and we need to, uh, you know, weaken them to a point where they're simply advisory bodies. Well, we're not going to take that. doesn't matter what laws, um, you know, this government chooses to bring in. We will continue to organise workers and fight back on their behalf. Because it, it does... Um... Yeah, it does feel like it just in very recent months, um, things like the junior doctor strike and obviously the steel industry, uh, you know, the, those uh, unions seem to have had uh, quite an impact on the government. So it's obviously uh, still still it's still a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, um, you know, the, the junior doctors was a very interesting one. And we've now got um, we've now got the teaching unions um, preparing to to ballot. Well, correct, correct myself there, they were preparing to ballot against the forced academisation of schools, another, you know, another glorious U-turn by this government. We've seen quite a few in yeah. recent times. Um, so, you know, groups of people who traditionally aren't, aren't particularly associated with trade unions actually taking action, uh, and an action that, that has a, an impact, you know, really does have a, you know, a successful outcome, even if it's not the whole way. I think it's opening a lot of people's eyes to actually question the whole notion of collective organisation. I mean, we we ballot members probably most weeks. Um, you won't hear about them, the public won't hear about them, because we ballot members, we get huge 90 95 even 99% strike votes. And what that does, Tim, in most, most instances, it, it, it makes it clear to the employer that we're serious 
and it pulls them back to the negotiating table. We managed to get a decent, fair deal. So nine times out of ten when we ballot members, uh, you know, we're doing it to say we're serious about this, our members feel strongly about this. If you want to avoid, um, you know, un unnecessary strife and confrontation, start getting serious and start negotiating. And, you know, we, we believe that this is, as I say, something we never rush into, but it's sometimes the, the case, whether it's on health and safety, whether it's on paying conditions, whether it's protecting jobs, we have no choice other than to uh, use, you know, the industrial action route. And as I say, most times it leads to an employer getting real, getting serious, rolling up their sleeves, getting around the negotiating table and striking a deal. So we we believe that the, you know, the, the, the sort of power of unions, if you like, although it's certainly a very different um, environment to the, uh, you know, the 70s and the 80s, the mm. minor strikes, the winter of discontent, we're not in that world anymore. But, you know, um, smart, targeted um, balloting of groups of members certainly is necessary and certainly does still have results. We'll be back with Peter in just a minute, but first... There's no evidence that legal highs are bad, but that's okay because now they're banned. There's also no evidence that fracking is bad, but that's okay because now fracking is planned, even though it might cause earthquakes or poison water over time. But don't you worry, because fracking is fine. Even though it could cause tremors, or ancient dinosaur sorcerer terrors to leap out from the ground and kill us all before we made a sound but fracking is fine and legal highs are bad don't ask me why I'm not your dad just don't do legal highs with or without you with or without you It is not long left until I can throw that jingle in the trash can and stop having to tell you about things like a pro-EU man in a gorilla suit being punched in the face at a Boris Johnson vote leave rally and there wasn't even a four-year-old boy anywhere near him. Yes, that is the sort of campaigning that has been happening this week to do with the EU referendum. Assaults against people in fancy dress. Which, to be fair, I've often wished would happen a lot more. But in this case, where Boris Johnson's statements on the EU are pure monkey business, it didn't really seem fair. There was also someone dressed as a banana, but I think they got away unharmed after giving the crowd the slip. No, I'm not even sorry. And that was probably the highlight of a week that was mostly more economic scaremongering from the Remain campaign, while Boris and Michael Gove attacked David Cameron for failing to hit promised immigration curbing targets. And here we have the crux of the most interesting part of this week's EU referendum nonsense. Conservative Party MPs are criticising the head of the Conservative Party for not reaching targets they were also aiming to reach as part of the Conservative Party. They are literally tearing themselves apart, and it is brilliant. The immigration targets themselves, I should say, are quite ridiculous, as the government claimed that they'd get net immigration to below 100,000, and the Office of National Statistics has released figures for 2015 when the numbers were 333,000, so way off target. 
Net migration is the difference between people coming into the UK for at least a year and those leaving. So you could argue that to get net migration down, more UK citizens really need to piss off for over a year. And let's face it, after another three weeks of EU campaigns, we'll probably all want to do exactly that. Of that 333,000, only 184,000, so that's uh, my bad maths, about half-ish, uh, were EU-only migration. So even if we left the EU, it would only about half the immigration statistics. And then there's an awful lot to say that all those EU migration figures would just sort of stay the same but become amalgamated with all the overall migration figures. But look, ignoring Gove's claims that all this migration will damage schools, which would be tough considering there's not much left that isn't damaged in schools thanks to him and Nicky Morgan, or that all these immigration figures will put pressure on the NHS. The fact is, the UK population is set to rise by 10 million in 25 years anyway, on account of us all living longer. So immigration or not, those systems have been so depleted by government cuts, they'll be in a mess either way. Hey, we may as well invite other people over to enjoy it too. What's more interesting is that Michael Gove and Boris Johnson aren't so directly attacking David Cameron. As is Priti Patel, who said David Cameron was too rich to care about immigration, forgetting that it is rich people who hope to exploit workers the most. Not that anyone should ever assume Priti Patel knows what she's talking about anyway. But there is an awful lot of talk about a coup against the Prime Minister following the referendum, whichever way it goes. Nadine Dorries, who's only ever had people enthusiastically voting for her when it meant they wouldn't have to see her on their TV anymore, she said that she'd written a letter to the Prime Minister asking him to step down. And an unnamed Tory MP told the Sunday Times that he doesn't want to stab Cameron in the back, he wants to stab him in the front so I can see the expression on his face. Which is the first time a Conservative MP has ever held exactly the same opinions as the public. The unnamed MP also added, all we have to do is catch the Prime Minister with a live boy or a dead girl and we are away. Which is a quote from US politician Edwin Edwards in 1983, but also, funnily enough, aptly describes David Cameron's giant lizard feeding habits, which are yet to be caught on camera despite Attenborough's best attempts. So, it's not looking good for David Cameron. If it's a Brexit, then he'll have lost the campaign that he's backing, meaning it's likely he won't be able to stay Prime Minister after losing such face. But if it's a Bremain, it'll only take 50 Tory MPs writing to the Conservatives' 1922 committee to cause a new leadership contest. Yes, it's called 1922, as that was the year they stopped updating their politics. So yeah, only 50 MPs, and there are probably that many who are anti-Europe and be willing to unseat DCAM. Yeah, you think! An earlier end to Cameron than was planned! How nice! But then, who would replace him? And as your mind races through the potentials like a gallery of genetic test subjects that have all gone horribly wrong, then the fear really sets in. Now, my plans are that in episode 21, in a couple of weeks, uh, I'm going to do an EU special where I go through each and every issue and see if we can get some actual info on any of it. But until then, I thought I'd very quickly try and talk about the regular assumption that the EU is undemocratically elected. So, firstly, let's start by saying that the EU is not run by the European Commission, nor is the European Commission the government of Europe, or is it in charge of how you wear your hair or what time you go to bed? Well, you know, unless your mum is in the European Commission, then ignore those last two, she's totally in charge of that. But what the EU is, though, is run completely unlike the UK political system, and that means that, like most things outside of the EU, us British people can't really be bothered to attempt to understand it, and why oh why won't they all just speak English and serve me some egg and chips? 
The way it works is that the European Commission proposes new laws, manages policies and budgets, and generally represents the EU when it comes to all kind of trade agreements. And the European Commission is led by 28 people, one from each member state, and the Commission President, who is currently Jean-Claude Juncker, a man who you might recognise as looking quite a lot like a mouse in a suit. Uh, which, considering that mice don't know when they're weeing, I mean, that would be a terrible idea. You'd definitely notice the patches on a grey cotton. The Commission President is nominated by the Prime Ministers and Presidents of all the member states, who, you know, the citizens of that state vote for, so already there's some indirect democracy going on right there. And then, the Commission itself can't actually pass any laws unless it's approved by a majority vote in the European Parliament. And that European Parliament consists of MEPs, members of European Parliament, who are directly elected by the citizens of their country. Therefore, you directly elect an MEP, unless you didn't bother to vote, and then that MEP turns up to the European Parliament and has a direct vote in EU policies unless you voted for a UKIP candidate, in which case they either won't turn up half the time, meaning that you have absolutely no say at all, or they do turn up but vote against the policy, even if it's to try and save elephants, and everyone really loves elephants. So are they undemocratically elected? Well, I mean, if you consider that the Conservatives may have committed election fraud for 21 of their candidates, leading them to have a majority in the House of Commons, which, if it's decided by the court as being the case, then yeah, I guess that is undemocratic. So that the Prime Minister, who is undemocratically elected, helps decide who's on the European Commission. Uh, again, you know, that is kind of undemocratic. But I mean, I'd hardly blame that on the EU. That's to do with our political system here. And anyway, I mean, I'm being really facetious because Jean-Claude Juncker was elected in 2014. And that was when the coalition government were in and they were democratically elected. So when people say the EU is undemocratic and the commissions are unelected, what they mean is... I can't be bothered to look at how it works, and I probably wouldn't understand it anyway, as it's all foreigns. But hey, bloody unelected elected bureaucrats that don't represent us except for where we voted for them to? Yeah, makes me sick. So, does that make any difference as to whether we should stay or leave? No, not really. Sorry. Ask me another one. And now back to my interview with Peter Kavanagh. And and because you, you were saying that, that there's a lot that we don't hear about. I mean, are there an increasing amount of balloting? That feels like there's quite a lot that you're having to do at the moment. Is, do you feel that there's been an increase then in, in action that you've had to take? I think it's uh, most certainly been an increase in, in, in my union in Unite in the last um, five, six, seven years. And I think, you know, that's for one reason and one reason alone. We, we are living in the most extraordinary, uh, austere times, you know, Millions of jobs uh, wiped out. Um, millions of people having suffered at best pay freezes and at worst significant pay cuts. You know, while while all around them in terms of the social wage, you know, the health service, housing, education, everything has been affected by the policies of this government. It, it's not surprising to me that with a strong union and a union that's always prepared to stand up for its members, that more and more workers are actually saying enough is enough. You know, we, we, we want to stand together and, and protect what we've got. So, yeah, there has been an increase in ballots. Um, there's been, uh, you know, a fair amount of industrial action. But most times, as I, as I say, we're, we're pleased that this sort of leads to reasonable negotiations and a, and a settlement that our members vote to accept and, and we can actually get back to doing the job, whatever it is that our members want to do. I think it's also important, Tiernan, to, you know, to explain 
that trade unions do far more than, you know, get around a negotiating table, have a failure to agree, ballot the members, threaten strike action. Sure. We, you know, every day of every single week, you know, we make sure that workplaces are safe. We represent people um, who've been injured at work. We, you know, we've, we've got um, excellent legal services that provide representation in employment tribunals when people have been discriminated against or unfairly dismissed when people have been injured at work we recover enormous amounts of money for people who work for employers that haven't put their safety first and have put the profits before safety measures um you know we managed to conciliate and mediate and you know make sure that you know many many workplaces and industries actually manage to to tick over without any sort of conflict and confrontation. So we do enormous amounts of work that um, unfortunately never makes its way onto the front pages of the, uh, the right-wing press. The only time that the press show any um, attention to trade unions is, is, of course, when there's a, an impending strike. Sure. Yeah, it, it, it does feel to me like, like the main thing that's seems to have been forgotten is that you are representing workers, normal working people, which, uh, you know, people seem to think that unions are something separate to that. But, uh, you know, as far as I've, I've been brought up, is you are representing people that do work, like normal, everyday human beings. That's what, that's what trade unions represent, isn't it? It's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good point, a very... A very obvious point, but something that I think is overlooked. Um, trade, you know, I think you, I, I think we've got a lot of work to do as trade unions ourselves. You know, we, we, we need to, and, and again, Unite is doing this, we need to get into schools. We, we've trained up, um, you know, a small army of our uh, lay, lay representatives to go into schools, into secondary schools, to talk to teenagers um about you know the importance of being represented at work the importance of um, collectivism uh the importance of all of our values and i think that's something that we probably as a movement need to do more of there's very few young people these days um who actually understand what unions are all about you know go back 50 years and people would go to leave school go to work and they would join a union. Um, it's only really in the sort of more traditional sectors and industries now where that's still the case. So a lot of education is required. But you're absolutely right. You know, trade unions are not trade union barons. They're not, uh, you know, people that are trying to overthrow governments and wreck the economy. Trade unions are actually made up of millions of working people. They're still by far and away the biggest voluntary organisations in this country. There's still six and a half million members of trade unions, only half of what there was back in the 70s, and there's lots of reasons for that, the breakup of the traditional heavy industries. But you know, six and a half million people um, is, 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 is a lot of people. Mm. They're ordinary people. They're, they're people that keep our streets clean, care for our children, look after our elderly and uh, you know people who are sick. And, and unfortunately, this government has spent far too much demonising uh, us as representative bodies, rather than um, recognising the valuable uh, role we've got in a in a democratic and fair society. And, and do you think that um, part of the issue, I suppose, for for trade union representation is it used to have a, a very big connection with Labour, and that seems to have disappeared. I think over the last few years, and I know now in Scotland a lot of trade unions are kind of siding with SNP. But do you, do you feel that trade unions are sort of on their own now, or is there still big political connections? I think if you'd asked me that question um, a year ago, Tiernan, um, you might have got a different answer. Sure. <laughs> um, it, it, 
in in September last year, of course, um, we had uh, you know a fairly um, a fairly sort of cataclysmic election of uh, a new leader of the Labour Party, and you know Jeremy Corbyn was elected um, by all the various um, constituent groups of, of, of the electorate within the Labour Party, i.e., you know, long-standing Labour Party members. But very, very importantly, also um, the people who are known as affiliate members of the Labour Party, um, people who have indicated through their trade unions that they want a voice and they want a say. Um, and we, in, in Unite, recruited, I think, over 100,000 people in a very short time wow. to say that they, they, they believed in the values of Labour and they wanted to take part in the vote. And, of course, the, you know, it was a landslide victory for Corbyn, um, somebody who is a long, long-standing friend of the trade union movement, openly so, proudly so. Um, you know, he was a trade union um, official himself before he became an MP. He continues to, you know, stand alongside workers whenever they go into struggle. Um, he was, I saw him speaking at a BMA rally. Um, you know, and he, he puts his money where his mouth is. So I think that the link between Labour and the trade unions can only now become stronger uh, as as trade unionists see that they've got a Labour leader um, who shares shares our values. You know, who who will continue to share our values when hopefully uh, we get a Labour government in 2020. We've got a lot of work to do. Um, certainly, Jeremy's got a lot of work to do inside um, his parliamentary uh, party. But, yeah. you know, beyond the um, 200 or so Labour MPs, I don't think anyone can, um, you know, contest the idea that there's massive support for his alternative vision to, to, to the, you know, what this government has been peddling for, you know, seven or eight years now. So I think the link can become stronger. I think it must become stronger. I think it's no good um, simply operating in the industrial world. We, we also have to operate in the political world. And the only way we can do that is to have a party that actually represents the, uh, the, the views and the interests of working people. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, so just as a, a last question then, I, I didn't realise uh, over 100,000 had joined uh, Unite just to vote in the, the Labour election. That's fantastic. Um, so just a last question, uh, what should, and this probably sounds quite obvious, but what should people do if where they work doesn't have a union? Um, what should people do? Like my, myself, I'm self-employed, uh, but because yeah. I, I do creative stuff, I've, I've joined Equity, but I know there's a lot of self-employed people out there that perhaps haven't got a union they can identify with. What should those people do? Yeah, just before I answer that question, Tinan, the, the, the 100,000 figure that I gave you, they were Unite members who became affiliate members of the ah, party. right, sorry. Okay, yeah. Um, which which was something that came out of um, a review of, of, of the whole system of elections within the Labour Party called the Collins Review. Um, so I just wanted to, to clear that point up. Right, sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, your question about uh, what should people do if there's, there's no union in the workplace, and, and, and very interesting, your question about self-employed people. Um, no, no surprise with the first part of your question. Um, you know, they need to join the union that's relevant to the sector within which they work. I mean, Unite is a big general union. We, we represent people... Uh, in all sectors, public services, um, public sector and, and private sector, um, you know, transport, manufacturing, um, you know, the, the, the whole lot. 
So people should join the union that is relevant and most helpful and supportive to the, the industry or sector they work in. They can, they, they can go, but if there is no union in the workplace, you know, they can simply um, go online. Uh, I would obviously, as a Unite official, be urging people to join the biggest and best trade union in the country, Unite Union. But, you know, if, if you were um, in, in a sector where we aren't particularly uh, influential, then, then join that union. You can do that by going online and Googling uh, the various trade unions and, and finding out. But really... What we're all about is collective organisation. Uh, it's important as an individual to join a union because you then immediately get, uh, you know, access to, um, you know, extremely good advice, uh, representation, uh, potentially legal representation if that was required. But we're more about, rather than servicing individuals, we're about helping people to organise in their workplaces. So. It happens you know, every day of the week that we get contacted by, by someone interested in joining the union rather than just saying, yes, fill the form in. We approach it from the point of view of, well, tell us a bit more about your workplace, how many people work there, what sort of issues have you got. Um, it may be a bullying supervisor, it may be low pay, it may be one of, one of many things. And we then tend to say, well, is this something that affects other people in the workplace? And do you think that other people may be interested in joining as well. It's no good having one member in a workplace with 100. We're all about building organisation. Sure. So, that, you know, most definitely people should um, should find out about the most relevant union and then um, seek support for getting organised. Self-employed people, um, it, it's a very interesting one. And, of course, you know, the world is, is, is constantly changing. The, the workforce is, is constantly changing in its nature and its composition. And there's more and more people... Um, either define themselves as self-employed or in some cases are probably what we would describe as bogus self-employed. But we in Unite currently represent some very interesting groups of people that don't fall into the, the normal employed category. So um, London taxi drivers, for example, are self-employed guys, but very much needing a strong voice in terms of negotiating the annual um, increase in the tariff. Um, in, in negotiating over the regulations that govern their lives and their livelihoods with the with Transport for London. used to be the Public Carriage Office. It's now Transport for London. Another group um, of people that we've um, organised very successfully in recent times um, are interpreters. Um, we've now got about 500 members, um, got their own branch, very, very active. Um, they've got their own standards, their own training, their own uh, regulations that govern their particular sector, and they've chosen to join Unite um, because they know that we're a big organisation with lots of, um, you know, researchers, lots of legal representatives, and they've they've found their home now in Unite. Um, tour guides, the um, the Blue Badge Tour Guides, again, oh, yeah. self-employed people. Got a fantastic Unite branch here in London. Um, meet regularly, and again, it's all about the the regulations that govern um, their their working life. So, yeah, it, it's an increasing uh, area for us to be looking at. Um, you know, the, the the spread of Unite it never never fails to sort of um, amaze me. We've got we've got a branch of uh, I think about fifteen hundred faith workers, oh, people wow. that work uh, in you know in the various um, churches and um, 
you know, all, all, across all the different religions. So, yeah, um, just because you don't work in a in a factory on a, on an assembly line does not mean that you cannot or should not join a trade union. All working people have got rights in my book. All working people have got uh, a need for collective strength and representation. That's what trade unions are here for. Thanks to Peter for talking to me. Uh, If you are interested in joining a union or perhaps inquiring if it's possible for your workplace or area of work to have one, uh, then do check out Unite at unitetheunion.org or on Twitter at unitetheunion. Uh, As I said, I'm part of Equity, which is a union for performers. And while I haven't had to use them often, they were so helpful uh, with making sure I got paid for a beer advert that I did about 10 years ago um, that I actually ended up getting paid money that I wasn't even owed. Hooray, unions are brilliant. Ha, Carlsberg don't do it accountancy but if they did they'd probably be really shit at it and they did do accountancy and they were total win for me Uh, Next week, I'm going to be speaking to Open Democracy editor Adam Ramsey about Scotland's current political situation. Um, But if you have any recommendations for people you'd like me to interview in upcoming weeks or subjects I should try and hunt down someone to talk to about, uh, then please do let me know at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or on the Twitters and the Facebooks. In line with the Psychoactive Substance Bill and me not wanting to ask any more EU-based questions, this week's Question of the Week, where I say the word week more than anyone should ever say week in a sentence, week! This week's question was, what highs would you ban under the Psychoactive Substance Bill and why? And the people, they did say... At Vlizzy Rascal said he would ban hi-ho, those dwarves have had it too good for too long. Sizest bastard. At Nuncio2 said uh, he'd like to ban hiatuses, but there's no point. Hiatuses gonna hiate. So at Egathgoch, I think that's right, my Welsh is terrible. Um, they've said high Wickham because it makes no sense without low Wickham. Uh, and that is a damn good point. Although, rather than ban High Wickham or make it illegal, I mean, I have been there, to be fair. They've got, like, the magic roundabout, which is just a roundabout surrounded by five roundabouts. That isn't magic. It's horrific. I want, if you're going to do a magic roundabout, I want Dougal in the middle of it and some lovely music rather than an endless nightmare of traffic awful. Anyway, rather than ban High Wickham, what we should just do is rename Maidenhead Low Wickham because that would really fuck off people in Maidenhead. Brilliant. Uh, at Hair Suitable said uh, that he'd ban high horses, but essentially they are the platform on which all UK drug laws are based. Nice work, sir. And at Kev Saf said uh, he'd ban catnip. This country is going to the dogs. Ugh, slam. And that's all for this week's podcast. If you have enjoyed the show, please, please do spread the word. Maybe on toast. And hand that spreaded word toast to other people who may enjoy it too. And then they can eat it and digest it and eventually crap it. And no, this is this analogy has gone horribly wrong. Look, please do tell others about it and do review us on iTunes if you can. I know I say this every week, but it really, really does help. Um, as always, you can also contact me on Twitter at Parpolbro, Facebook at Parpolbro, because I am unoriginal, or at the partly political broadcast at gmail.com email that has still had less action than a white crayon. This week's show was brought to you by the letter E, which should make you all very happy. Except you, Theresa May, and frankly, I don't give a shit. Theresa May is sadly here to stay, despite her making bad decisions every day. From the police to the fire brigade, she don't like those who come to anyone's aid. 
She hates the European Court of Human Rights, but she likes water cannons though they damage your sight. Right now, she hates legal highs, cause they might make you enjoy yourself and that ain't right. Theresa May will try anyways, to make sure you're all unhappy till the end of days. Don't do legal highs. Don't do legal highs. I said don't do legal highs. Don't do legal highs. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.